0: John Stott, in his classic book, Basic Christianity, I'm pretty sure it was from back in the 50s, actually, when he did his first edition of that, describes what it means to be a Christian. In the last chapter, he describes it in terms of privileges and responsibilities, what it means to be in Christ, what privileges we derive from that. And then he speaks in terms of duties that we have in light of those privileges. Three, our duty to God, our duty to the church, and our duty to the world around us. I want to read from Stott's opening portion on the believer's duty to the church. He says this, The Christian life is not just a private affair of your own. If we are born again into God's family, not only has he become our father, but every other believer in the world, whatever their nation or denomination, has become our brother or sister in Christ. One of the commonest ways of describing Christians in the New Testament is as brothers and sisters. This is a glorious truth, But it is no good imagining that membership of the universal church of Christ is enough. We must belong to some local branch of it. Every Christian needs to belong to a local church and share in its worship, fellowship, and witness. Stop echoing what I think we see all over the New Testament, and that is that the local church is a crucial part of life for every believer in Jesus Christ. One of the ways that we've tried to emphasize that here at Grace Bible Church is through what we call a church covenant, as many local churches have—a a statement, as I explained to you last week, that that describes in the preamble some some sort of fundamental beliefs that we hold about the church, what we understand Scripture to teach about the church, and then the commitments that follow as a result of those beliefs, the, the, the sort of commitments that we make as believers to one another within the church. As I said to you last Sunday, the elder team worked during the fall and into the winter just on um, making some revisions to that covenant, primarily additions to the that latter section of commitments. Uh, and so my preaching last week, and this has been um, motivated by those proposed changes. Last week, we focused primarily on the the, the preamble, the, the, the foundational beliefs, and particularly as we see them in Ephesians 1 through 3, that, that show how God is working through his church and the emphasis on the local church. And then we began to make that shift into how New Testament believers are urged to deepen their commitment to the church. And that's really where we left off last week. But I, I do want to reiterate this. The, the, the giving of a biblical basis... For what the elder team has proposed here is important. We, we ought to be able to speak from scripture and say, This is, this is why we, we've worded it the way we have. This is why the language is in here. This is why we believe this is important. That, that is clearly part of why I, I want to preach these things, but that's secondary. My real hope is that this study invigorates your passion for the local church, that whether you are here in Lorton and Grace Bible Church is your home or you go off to college or you're transferred somewhere else or moved somewhere else or wherever you might be, that you would have a passion for the local church, for being engaged and committed to a local church, as is God's design. Uh, As I mentioned to you last week, I'm going to give four. I gave the first one last week, four biblical reasons behind why I think it is right and good for the elder team to say to ourselves and to you, This is why we're putting forth these we will statements, the the, the we will um, sort of commitments that are in the covenant, the 14 statements that I I mentioned to you last week. And so here's sort of the biblical basis behind that. The, The first of those four reasons is the one we looked at last Sunday. We should be deeply committed to a local church because that is God's design. And we looked in Ephesians 4 11 through 16, and, and just that passage that emphasizes how God gave some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers for the building up of the body, for the nurturing, for the equipping of the saints in order to do the work of ministry so that the church would grow. We are joined together in a body that, that functions, that the members interact with one another and functions best when all of its parts are actively effectively serving, and that seems to be the emphasis in Ephesians 4, along with the fact that God's design is that there be a a teaching of the word, that the making of disciples means equipping people to grow together in like-mindedness, maturing together in the understanding of who Christ is so we might be more like him. That ministry of God's word that is given power by God's spirit causes individual Christians to grow and the design in Ephesians 4 is that 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 individuality be blended together into a body where we're helping each other to do that so we're maturing and growing together. So that was the first one we talked about last week. Turn to Matthew chapter 16 as we move on to number two. Matthew 16, we should be deeply committed to a local church because it is first God's design, secondly because it is Christ's command. Jesus in Matthew 16 Essentially, the latter part of his ministry, he has moved away from sort of the large group sort of teaching settings. That that becomes less important in the last part of his ministry as much as him focusing in on the disciples, the immediate 12, 11 of whom will become foundational in the church, who will um, be discipled by him so that their teaching then will help to equip the church and to grow on that foundation. And so in Matthew 16... He demonstrates to the disciples that the Jewish religious leaders either are in denial about who he is or don't understand who he is or both, and they do not get it. And so he turns to his own disciples and he asks that question of, who do you say I am? We know what they think, but who do you say I am? And Peter, with the the great answer, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. If you look at verse 17, let's pick up Matthew 16, verse 17. And Jesus answered him, answered Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. First thing Jesus says is, good answer, Peter clearly not your own. That's from God. God has revealed that to you. You didn't get that by virtue of your own intuition. You got that by virtue of divine revelation, and so you are correct. What he says next, you are Peter. The next phrase has caused a lot of controversy and misunderstanding throughout the history of the church. I'm just going to Um, sort of divert for just a couple of minutes just to talk about that where he says you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. The Roman Catholic Church identifies Peter as the the first bishop of Rome otherwise known as the Pope and and they believe that that's rooted here at least in part in this statement that Peter becomes the first in a long line of earthly uh, authority, of individual earthly authority that sort of succeeds him, follows after him in papal authority. So why does Jesus say what he says? The the first part of it, that that you are Peter, is is actually just a, a, a sort of appropriate play on words to what Peter has just said. Peter has just said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds and says, you are Peter. The, the Greek word for the name means rock. It has the idea of, of some kind of solid stone. And so he's, he's calling out that part of Peter's name, you are rock. Now, since the days of Luther, Protestants have been trying to separate the, the, these two statements. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Largely, the argument is he's looking to Peter and saying, "You are you are like a you are like a stone. You are a strong one, but on this rock, referring to himself, I, I will build my church." And that's not a not necessarily a bad understanding of the passage, but I, I, I'm not sure that it's the best way for us to look at it because Matthew certainly isn't that clear. It, it would have been a lot easier if Matthew had told us that Jesus said and. Um, on this rock, and, and then he pointed to himself, I will build my church. Then, then we'd have it clearly. The grammar leaves itself open to the reality that he is speaking to Peter. You are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Two forms of the word rock. But nonetheless, he still could easily be speaking to Peter and identifying him as the rock. So here's, here's what I, I think we need to comfort ourselves with as we look at it that way. It is okay to see Peter as the rock that Jesus referred to, that upon this rock I will build my church, without any sort of implications of succession. Because there is nothing in this passage that says, you are the first of many, that there will be others who will also then be that rock, who will follow and who will hold that same sort of singular office. That's not what he's saying. This is not saying, Peter, you are some uniquely chosen, first in a long line of universal church leaders. What he's saying to Peter, I think, is borne out by what we've already studied in the book of Acts, and that is Peter does have a unique role in the early church. If you go back to Acts chapter 2 and the preaching in Jerusalem, the the first really authoritative proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ post-resurrection. Jesus has certainly preached and called people to believe in himself, but now he has risen and ascended. And now this becomes the, the, the church's sort of foundational message of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit then comes upon people and the church is born. Who, who preached that message? It was Peter. When, when the, the gospel begins to spread to Samaria, to a, a group that ethnically is different from the Jews, unliked by the Jews, the Samaritan people, when the gospel goes there, who is called to be the sort of eyes and ears of the church to go and say, let's see if this is first a, a true gospel. Let's see if the Holy Spirit comes in that same way and they become believers just like us. So therefore, they receive it just like us. It's, it's Peter, again, who's part of that, that sort of sent team of ambassadors. And then, finally, when the gospel goes to Gentiles, to Cornelius in, in particular, and, and that's the instance when the Holy Spirit then comes upon Gentiles, and that's the case that, that later has to be defended in dealings between Jews and Gentiles and saying, no, it was the same Spirit, it was the same gospel, they believed in the same way, we're all in this together. Who is the one who was called to do that? It is, is Peter. And, and so there's nothing wrong with understanding here that, that Peter has a significant role. In in, in fact, when he goes on in verse 19 and he talks about the keys to the kingdom, it's not necessarily something that speaks of kind of a long-standing church authority role. This This is a time, first century Judaism, when the Jewish religious leaders are not exactly making the kingdom of God to be within people's reach. They're making it seem harder to get into the kingdom of God. They've they've embellished the law. They've built up the law. They've made it sound like you have to keep the law and work hard. and, And maybe, maybe then you can have access to God's kingdom. Peter comes and he preaches, And essentially throws open the doors to God's kingdom and says, you can believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. You can be in God's kingdom by virtue of turning from your sin and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the the keys of the kingdom are really the the idea that that, Peter does have this foundational role, but it's, it's really... The, the preached gospel of Jesus Christ that becomes this foundation, this proclamation becomes the, the basis for now opening the kingdom of God to all. And, and it has always been the case. We can go back to, um, um, Brian mentioned Noah and, and Abraham. They, they came to God by virtue of faith. That has always been the case. But the clarity of the gospel of Jesus Christ is what is preached here, and, and that's what Peter's starting with. What is significant, really, about verse 18, and, and what we sometimes lose sight of in the midst of the sort of dealing with those statements, is Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. It's the first time in the Gospels, one of only two places. It's here, and then the, uh, the others in chapter 18 we'll look at in a moment, where Jesus now brings in the ecclesia, my called out group of people. It's what the idea of the the church means. It's a a called from out of the world, called together group of people, my church. So what, what Jesus is saying here is the proclamation of the gospel will formally go forward. It will go forth first from Peter But then we know from Ephesians it will go forth on this foundation of the apostles, which is why he's focused on these, particularly these 11 who are before him. Because this now, upon this foundation, Jesus will build this unstoppable community of believers. This community of believers that even when the very powers of hell seek to strive against it, they will not succeed. It will continue to grow and flourish. We belong to something that will not be stopped. No matter what the world does, no matter what happens around us, the church of Jesus Christ is here, it is growing, and it will continue to grow by virtue of Jesus' promise. All right, turn to chapter 18, and this is the other reference, and I just, we'll, we'll get this to why this speaks in terms of command from Christ concerning his church. Matthew 18, Jesus is addressing what happens when there is sin in your midst. Again, equipping his, his disciples, soon-to-be apostles, what happens when, when there is one of your brethren who persists in sin, who offends someone else and doesn't seek forgiveness and, and persists and goes on, and you, you appeal to them and you go to them and you tell them, hey, this is not right, this is not consistent with God's word, this is, this is unholy, this is sinful. This is sinful. And, and you sort of labor with them, and they do not respond, and they don't want to be reconciled. And so Jesus gives steps here and ultimately says, if they will not be reconciled, he says in verse 17, tell it to the church. Look at Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, that being witnesses who have gone with the, the initial witness, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. All right. Whenever, when a person professes faith in Jesus Christ, baptized, engaged with a local body of believers, they are demonstrating the, the, the evidence, if you will, the fruit, if you will, of walking with Jesus Christ. That person then sins and becomes stubbornly unrepentant about that sin. Reality is we all sin as, as believers in Jesus Christ. This is what, what's clear here. The distinctive about this person is someone has gone and lovingly said, um, this is not right, what you're doing, you've offended me, or you've done something that's blatant sin, calling you to repentance. And then the witnesses have gone and they've done the same. And each time it is the unrepentance of the person that escalates it to the next point till finally it is now on the church. And, and, and the church now called to pursue this person with the goal in all of this of reconciliation. The goal is always just urging you to turn, repent of your sin and embrace the grace of God through Jesus Christ and, and turn. The local church, if, if that person persists and they've been warned, and the church is gone and nothing's changing, then the local church here is commanded to take the lead in ceasing to treat the offender as a believer in Jesus Christ. There's a temptation here to think that that seems harsh, but that is the most loving thing we can do at that point, is to say to that person, you are no longer functioning as a part of the-, the body of believers because you are either wallowing in this sin or you're refusing to repent of this sin and you don't desire to be reconciled. As, as Christians, we-, we should understand God's grace better than anyone else in the world. We should be more convinced that confession of sin, repentance, and the giving of forgiveness should be part of our everyday life. It should be a, a place not where we're comfortable in a in a bad way that we just go on sinning because that allows grace to flourish all the more. Paul speaks to that in Romans 6. But it should be a place that we are used to and not afraid of because we know it's God's grace. And so the confession of sin, the seeking of repentance, the giving of forgiveness should be a lifestyle for us. And so if someone, and, and then witnesses, as it describes here in Matthew 18, and then finally the local church says, Listen, we love you, but what you've done or what you are persisting in doing is sin. It's making a mockery of the gospel because you're just going on in this in in an attitude of unrepentance and not willing to be reconciled, and you cannot continue to do that and at the same time claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ and a part of this body because at some point you are bringing the name of Jesus Christ into question by your actions and by your testimony. You're, you're, You're allowing the world to look on. This is one of the things Paul's rebuking the Corinthians for. You're allowing the world to look on and go, oh. We can can do whatever we want to do because the Christians do whatever they want to do. And so the command here is the local church now must act authoritatively. So it is the kindness of God to give local churches the responsibility to lovingly appeal to a professing believer who is stubbornly rejecting what Scripture says. It is God's mercy at work in making that appeal to call them back. Okay, here's the point. It feels like i know we we've, we've sidetracked on the papacy and church discipline what does this have to do with my commitment to the local church point is this the church jesus christ is building the one that he said he would build in matthew 16 is experienced by us as a local community that gathers together to be under the authority of the Word of God, to come under the teaching of the Word of God, and to submit to that, and to then engage with each other, and to help each other to obey it, and to walk in faithfulness and steadfastness. The local church is the environment in in which we do this. There is no Lone Ranger Christianity that says, I can do what I want to do, go where I want to go, connect with that body if I choose to connect, if it feels right to me. And otherwise, I'm just going to do what I want, even if it's sinning. The, the whole point of both the, the Matthew 16 command, but especially here in Matthew 18, he uses that, that language of binding and loosing. He's using what are rabbinical terms for um, forbidding or permitting is really what that language is. And he's saying to the local church, this This commitment of believers to one another is so important that it's to the point that if one in your body professes to be a believer in Jesus Christ and a member of your local gathering, and yet acts entirely contrary, and when warned and appealed to and loved and encouraged will not turn back, that you must then, as this last resort sort of step, forbid that person. That's what the binding is. You must say you, you cannot just be a part of the body as if nothing's happened, as if you're just another believer in Jesus Christ just going through some struggles. You've been appealed to. You've been asked to repent. You've been called to see your sin, and you are stubbornly refusing. The, the model for this that Jesus has command is, is Paul carrying it out in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There is sexual sin going on within the church at Corinth, and the church, it appears from, from Paul's rebuke, is just sort of saying, hmm, it's all right. I mean, it goes on all the time out in the world. So what if, if it's one of our own people that's carrying on in sexual sin? And Paul's response in 1 Corinthians 5 is this should grieve you. You should, you should care enough about holiness that you should not just sort of partake in this or allow this or look the other way, but you should actually, and he describes it in 1 Corinthians 5, is you should exclude this one. You should put this one out in, in the sense that they now go back to experiencing the world and, and being apart from the body of believers, and you're praying that by that experience, that finally urges them back and impels them back in repentance toward the body of Christ. As believers, we ought to be eager to say, hey, I want to be committed to a local church as a member of a body of believers that takes truth, the truth of God's word, seriously, that takes holiness seriously, and that will love me enough to pursue me. If I am persisting in sin and I am refusing to be reconciled, may they please come after me and care for me enough to urge me to repent. That's the desire of engagement that I should want because I am in the body of Christ. And that's the the heart of this. That's why Jesus is, this is his church. And and that's why there's language in our proposed covenant that says we will seek to resist sin and pursue holiness. We can just as easily make that first person singular. I will um, seek to resist sin and pursue holiness. And we're biblically correct by doing so because we should. We should seek to pursue holiness and resist sin. But we've put it in the covenant because there's also this New Testament picture, particularly here in Matthew 18, that says Christ, in building his church, wants us to do that as a community, too. He wants us to be doing that corporately, that together we say holiness matters, and we're going to help each other do it. There has always been these seasons in the church, and and, and I certainly don't want to say never been a time like this because you go back to the Roman Empire and, and there was immorality and stuff that was beyond even where we are. It just spreads faster in our environment thanks to the internet, but there has always been this desperate need for us to be in community to help us love holiness and battle holiness and the flesh and temptation because the world and this press of its garbage is constant and that's why we're exhorting one another and calling one another to turn from it. So that's Jesus describing commitment to that local body. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We should be deeply committed to a local church because that's God's design. It's Christ's command. And then it's, it's modeled by the New Testament church. I referred to this before. Peter preaches that first sermon in Acts, Acts chapter 2 in, in Jerusalem Verse 41 of Acts 2. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were at it that day about 3,000 souls. Context here is the birth formally of the New Testament church. All right? The gospel has been preached. The Holy Spirit has now come upon his people. They are baptized in the sense of being joined to the body of Christ through the Spirit, but also, as he describes here, baptized in water as an identifying mark, as a profession of faith in Christ. They are then baptized to be identified publicly. Verse 41 does indicate that at some point early on, there was some degree of record keeping to all of this. This wasn't just a sort of loose affiliation of, yeah, I think, I think there were a bunch of people that got saved and then they sort of went on their way. Verse 41 makes it clear that there was some effort to keep track of those who both professed faith in Christ and then publicly acknowledged that through baptism. The number was fluid because the church was growing rapidly, but, but Luke is able to define the number and say it was it was about 3,000. It's because the, the early apostles are in some sense keeping track because this is now... Not just again, okay, you've, did, you've done this, you join the club, and now you, you leave and go home and do your own thing. This is now, we, we're in this together. You're part of a community of believers. And so there's this some level of record keeping to identify all who are joined. But, but of course, that's not all. You know how the rest of this goes. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Those who were being saved. Seems like a lifetime ago, but it was last April that we were here in this part of Acts chapter 2. So I'll just summarize it briefly. These early believers are joined to the body of Christ and immediately delve into corporate Together, experience. They immediately begin to do things together. They sit under the teaching of the word together. They they engage in sincere fellowship, which obviously is together. They are praying corporately and praying together, and and then they're, they're sharing. And giving from out of their own wealth is also becoming this powerful testimony so that together they're becoming a demonstration of Christ to the world around them. That's why it says that um, even the people around them they had favor with because people were watching this and seeing that something transforming was going on with this, this whole multitude of people. This is the New Testament model. This is what happens in Antioch in Syria. It doesn't go through the exact same description, but Antioch in Syria in Acts chapter 11, it tells us that there were people coming from diverse backgrounds and different communities, and they they began to move into this city and to the church there, and they began to sit under teaching together there and pray together there and give together there to the point that they were collecting an offering together so that they could help the believers who were struggling down in Jerusalem. There in, in Antioch, there is this gathered community, that is doing life together and serving together. Acts 20, Paul, emotional message where he speaks to the, the elders in Ephesus. And as he knows, this is probably his last opportunity to charge them. And he says to these elders, you need to shepherd the flock of God that's been entrusted to you. You need to guard it. You need to teach it. You need to hold on to it and care for it so that they, they stand steadfast when false teaching or persecution comes. Because that's what local bodies do. They grow together. Well then we could just go on through the New Testament and the one another's, Romans 12. Local assembly of believers should be devoted to one another, strive for like-mindedness with one another, love one another. And it gives some very practical and humble ways. Paul goes on in Romans and says, we should not cause each other to stumble. We should try to live in harmony with one another. We should instruct one another, greet one another, exhort one another. Those are all statements from from out of the book of Romans, from that latter part of Romans. Galatians says to bear one another's burdens. Ephesians, speak the truth and love to one another. Be kind Tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Colossians, teach and exhort one another. You can't do these alone. You cannot follow the model of the New Testament or obey the commands of these one another's on your own. It takes another brother or sister in Christ at least if you're going to be able to exhort Commend, love, care for, serve. And the New Testament church shows us from its inception, there is this deep level of interconnectedness. It's not just some pie-in-the-sky vision. This is we, We've said it many times before, but this is the stuff that the unsaved world longs for, is this sense of community and belonging and interaction and caring. What Christ has said is, I am building my church so that you would experience that. So you would live it out in this form of once you've professed faith and are are now baptized, you are counted among those who belong to that local church and you are engaging with one another. So think about, I just listed for you just a, a smattering of sort of one another's. Here's a question I ask myself, so I'll share it with you. How are you engaging in these ways? How have you been caring for others? How have you been being kind to others? Bearing with others, grieving with them, growing in love toward them, praying for them, stirring one another up to love and good deeds, as Hebrews speaks of. That is the model. That is what we're urged to to look at as as a body and as individuals. How are we fulfilling these things? I'll recommend at the end of the sermon notes, there's two books recommended. I'll mention one of them right now, Stuart Scott's book, 31 Ways to Be a One-Another Christian. If you're looking for just some simple, practical help in these areas, just a list of the one-anothers and some practical understanding of what they mean, Um, Stuart's done a a great job on that in um, that book, 31 Ways. So let me have you turn to 1 Corinthians 12. Let's talk about the last one, 1 Corinthians 12. We should be deeply committed to a local body of believers because it's God's design, Christ's command. It's modeled in the early New Testament church. And finally, it is good. It is good for us and it is good for the body. It, 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 it shouldn't surprise us that God's design is good for his people, that when we follow it, we experience the blessing of it. And Paul will point that out here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you look at verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Corinthian church is sort of a series of topical messages by Paul, if you will. He's sort of responding to issues that have been presented to him either by a messenger verbally or in a letter. And so he's dealt with immorality in their midst. He's dealt with them dragging one another to court. Um, He's dealt with their tolerance toward sin. Now he's dealing in the last few chapters with a kind of spiritual rivalry that has grown up, a, a spiritual sort of competition That has built up wrongly in the church at Corinth. And so chapters 12 through 14 are trying to respond to this air of competition. Just like in any local church, Corinth has the same experience as all of us. There are people who serve and who exercise their gifts and who are rarely ever seen. They're they're at work quietly... They're providing a meal for someone. They're taking care of something here at the church. They're they're, they're doing some administrative responsibility. They're they're praying for someone in some way. They're engaged in ways that that don't get much attention. And then there are those whose, whose ministries are more visible. What was happening in Corinth is it led to this sort of arrogant rivalry of those who are teaching and those who are out front acting as if they are we're the special class. You know, we're the, we're the first class. And, and what that does is it creates just this instinctive sort of jealousy in the rest now who are incited to say, well, nobody sees me. Why can't I have that? I want that gift. I want that area of service. And Paul's response here in these verses is to teach them and say, yes, you are all different. God, by his grace, has equipped you differently. He has distributed differing, varying spiritual gifts within the body, different capacities for ministry. And he has done that for the very purpose of creating this incredible organism that, that can do multiple things, that can sort of walk and chew gum, to use our colloquialism, that, 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 that can minister in a variety of ways because it has all of these different people with, with different abilities. A local church needs this kind of diversity both in personality and in gifting from the Spirit in order to teach and counsel and handle administrative needs and, and, and serve someone who's hungry and, and meet different challenges and, and come alongside people who are grieving. No one person nor one type of person can do all of those things well by any stretch. It probably can't do them, but certainly can't do them well. I I know my limitations. I know when I'm trying to do things that are outside of my area of, of skill or gifting and it takes longer and it usually produces less in the process than somebody who comes along who has been uniquely made to do that and gifted by God to fulfill that. And that's the beauty of what he's describing here. He even uses the Trinity by, by, by speaking of the Lord, God, and Spirit all in these verses. He even takes the, the Trinity to make the point that Within the Godhead, there is this diversity yet unity. There's three yet one. They are all one in purpose, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so, too, there's this diversity of gifts and ministries, and it is all purposeful. And the key to it, he says in verse 7, is, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. Each one is the emphatic words there. Each one. So, each individual believer is in some way equipped to be a, a display in some way of the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. In some way, we, we manifest the fact that it is the Spirit who is doing this. this. This is not me in and of my flesh. This is God's Spirit. Every believer, it says, each one in a local church has been enabled by God, in some way to display, to show the spirit within the life of the body, and that is for the good of the whole body. It blesses the body when that person serves, even if it's not seen by the whole body. It's it's still, it's caring for the body, and it's strengthening the body. Our English translations use the words common good. The the Greek's literally a a two-part word. It means to bring together. But it came to mean in, in Greek writing something advantageous. It's it's a it's a it's it's like a finishing the puzzle or something that's all brought together. When it's done, then it's then it's good. When it's all brought together in one, it, it serves effectively. And so, um, Paul in, in chapter ten, verse twenty three says, "All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful or beneficial, profitable, advantageous." And that's his idea. Each individual is brought into this community with gifting and ability, and talent for the benefit of the whole body. It is for good that that you plug into a local church. It is good for you. It is good for that body. And so that's what we're seeing here in chapter 12 is this deeply committed group of people. That's what they're being called to who grow together, do life together, and use their gifts to serve one another for the good of the whole body. Maybe this is clearer if you think of it in the opposite terms. Nowhere, and, and certainly this is the rebuttal to it, nowhere does Scripture endorse the notion that God has equipped you and gifted you for you to indulge in that gift for yourself only. That it's just, it's all about you. God has equipped you to, to make you happy and no one else. That, that's just not the, the biblical model. Jesus came to, to, to serve Not to be served, but to serve. And and, and that's what the the purpose here, the gifting and equipping is to serve and build up the community around us. Listen, I'll I'll finish with this. At at the heart of all this is, is Matthew 22 and Jesus and the lawyer and the lawyer who says, so let me see if I can set you up with this one. What's the greatest commandment? You seem to know all of them. What's the biggie? And what does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, soul, and mind, love God with your whole being. That's the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There it is, right? We we worship and we serve God and we glorify God and we sing praises to God and and we adore him and, and we want to revere and love God. But we have also been commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves, And that's where we need each other because we can't do that apart from each other. Um, God in his grace has placed us in what he variously calls in the New Testament, a family, a household, a community, a body. He keeps using that language to say, this is where you do that. You want to understand how to love your neighbor as yourself? I put you in a perfect spot in order to do that. There's a little book that we've used in home groups um, over the last couple of years. It's called Caring for One Another by Ed Welch. If um, you've not gotten a copy of this, there are some out on the table outside, please help yourself. Um, a lot of us have, have shared these in home groups and this is one of those little books that's probably good annual reading, just to go back and you know remind ourselves of how we, how we do this. Let me just end with a, a quote from Welch from the very beginning of caring for one another. He says, Our calling is to care for each other's souls. We want to bring our struggles to the Lord and to each other so that the church can be strengthened and the world can witness wisdom and love. But since we have a long list of our own problems, we could easily think that care for others is best left to those who are more qualified. But the kingdom of God operates in ways we might not expect. Here, the humble and weak are the ones who do the heavy lifting of pastoral care. And then he quotes Ephesians 4, Jesus gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Welch continues, shepherds and teachers do the work of ministry They also train us to do the work of ministry. Apparently the Lord is pleased to use ordinary people through seemingly ordinary acts of love to be the prime contributors to the maturing of his people. If you have trusted in Jesus rather than yourself and you feel weak and unqualified, then you are qualified. Then you are called. Friends, that's us. That is life in the local church. That is what God has designed for us. That is what Christ has commanded. That's what the New Testament church has modeled and And we see in Scripture, and we know it from experience, that that is what is good. is to join together and serve together and love one another together in community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by creation order, if you will, by your work in creation, you have proven mightily that you alone are God. You are sufficient, able to exist. You don't need us. You don't need anything. It's out of your mercy and grace that you have created a people. But we see from creation just the distinction that you, you alone are powerful and mighty. And we, we, we find in ourselves all of the frailties and the weaknesses of a people who are broken, who, who struggle with sickness, who struggle with sin, temptation, whose minds get distracted, anxious, upset, whose hearts just get pulled by affections, by our emotions all over the place. And, And all of those weaknesses, by your kindness, remind us how much we need you, How desperately we need your spirit to help us, to cause us to to stand steadfast, to help our thinking, to guard our hearts, to to fill us with truth and power that only you can give. But, But those same weaknesses point to our desperate need for each other. How much we must be in community where we can come alongside those who are feeling especially weary or beleaguered by sin, those who are just hurting, and care for them and love them, and be that a part of the body that stands alongside and just provides a shoulder to help them stand steadfast. It is that, that weakness in us that pleads with us to be transparent and vulnerable Because here, before you and before our brothers and sisters in Christ, we we find help and comfort in our time of need. We find those who will come and weep with us or rejoice with us, as it may be. Father, I, I pray for Grace Bible Church. I thank you for the sweetness of fellowship, the commitment to sitting under your word, the serving in the community the heart that's been demonstrated in practical ways for outreach into this community. And and Lord, I, I thank you for all those things. I joined my brothers and sisters in thanking you, and I pray that you would cause us to excel still more, that we would not grow content, but that we would ever be pleading for your spirit to empower us and work through us so that we might be better at loving and serving each other, and be better at being a lighthouse in this community, that this area around us in Lorton Lord would see something distinctive. I pray, Lord, that even in 2021, with all that is unknown about this year ahead of us, that you would graciously pour out your spirit and allow us to do immeasurably more than all we might ask or imagine, that you would give us the opportunity to care for each other better and then to together reach out and serve our community and love on our neighbors. And Father, I just, I thank you so much for this body of believers. It's, it's care and it's love. I, I can speak from experience that just multiple times of experiencing the, the, the loving encouragement and exhortation from brothers and sisters who at times when I am tired or tempted, or frustrated, or walking in the flesh, who, who not even knowing my situation would reach out and text or call or send a note that says, hey, just praying for you. Thank you. Lord, thank you for how you, you have supplied this body. That together in weakness and humility, you might empower us to serve one another and love one another. Help us to do that better by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.